Good morning. This is Dave Nikolai with the University of Minnesota. I'd like to welcome you to the third installment of the IPM, or Integrated Pest Management Podcast, in a series here in 2019. We're really encouraged and glad this morning that we have uh, two special guests with us for this podcast, Bruce Potter and Kurt Burns. And I'm going to let these gentlemen introduce themselves. They're both key in terms of agriculture and crop production in Minnesota. Bruce, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, Bruce Potter, uh, Integrated Pest Management Specialist with the University of Minnesota Extension. My office is uh, with Southwest Research and Outreach Center. It's a couple miles west of beautiful downtown Lamberton, Minnesota. And I am Kurt Burns. I am an independent crop consultant serving Sibley, McLeod, Renville, uh, Nicollet, uh, Meeker counties. I also farm. So, Kurt, how long have you been uh, an independent crop consultant in the area? This is my 28th year. So a few years of experience now, and I still learn every day. And I think, uh, Bruce, how long have you uh, been out on the scene in ag- Minnesota agriculture with uh, integrated pest management? At Lamberton in the current position, uh, 22 years. Well, it's coming up to the 1st of July here uh, this uh, coming week. There's a lot of things happening out in crop production in the field. Finally, things are warming up. It's been pretty cold and pretty wet, but with the w- recent warm temperatures, Uh, Over the weekend, we're getting a lot of crop growth, but certainly uh, it's a situation where uh, growers, uh, consultants, ag professionals have to really begin their scouting program in earnest if they haven't already. So let's uh, start off with that, Bruce, and you want to talk a little bit about what's been going on in the fields and what people should be looking at here for the uh, uh, upcoming month of July. Well, I think I'm going to turn it over to Kurt uh, first because he spent a lot more time in fields than I do. And, and uh, you know, when we talk about pest management, whether that's weeds, insects, or diseases, you know, I think we always need to start at the start. And, uh, you know, Kurt, you and I have talked in the past a little bit about this tough spring and the wet weather, kind of some of the things that that's impacted as far as crop production and management later on this summer. That's right, Bruce. And, and we've had this conversation this spring and many springs, but It looks to me that tile drainage uh, is the most important management thing that needs to happen on on a person's farm today with the type of weather patterns that we're having, uh, these wetter springs, these wetter summers, and it's all about timing with IPM. It's timing of getting the field planted on time. It's timing to get the spraying done on time, to get the treatments of insecticides or whatever it needs to be. And right now we're facing the same issue. I've got dry beans that need to be sprayed right now because of rotational restrictions with herbicides and some guys can't get in the field because the fields are too wet yet. And so it really comes down to tile drainage of trying to be ahead of the game when it comes to integrated pest management. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really struck me this spring is that we're seeing a lot of, because of this uh, unevenness in how uh, fields are getting planted, we've got some fields go in early, some fields go in late. We've got big discrepancies in crop stages out there, and that's uh, having some in, or impact on uh, insect pressure. I've seen some issues with uh, black cutworm. Uh, we still have a few of those out there. One of the things we're seeing this year is in soybeans. Uh, they're attacking some soybeans. Fields where they're having pressure is a lot of times areas where it drowned out last year in corn. Typically, we think of uh, black cutworms uh, following soybean residue. But uh, there's ways you can you can attract them uh, into corn residue as well. Seeing some cases with thistle caterpillar, for example, where you know some soybean fields got in real early and ahead of everybody else, and uh, those are the ones the butterflies were attracted to. They laid their eggs, and we've got some concentrations there. 
I think we're going to see issues. You know, we can talk about this a little later, but corn borer, when we start scouting corn borer, uh, there's going to be some fields that uh, are, are definitely more attractive and less attractive to those moths as well. So I think that's think that's a really uh, important uh, aspect as far as, you know, if you get good field conditions, you got a uh, good start to the crop, th- those fields in those areas are off to a good start and even. When I look at, too, is the disease pressures, you know, you look at Phytophthora root rot, Rhizoctonia root rot, Pythium, all of them in soybeans. And if you have a well-drained farm, you don't have those issues that you're dealing with as much. Not to say that there's not out there, but not as prevalent when you have well-drained farms out there that the root system can handle it, the water gets drained through the system, and you're not sitting in saturated soils all the time. Same thing, and I know a little bit soil fertility here, but same thing with nitrogen management. Uh, the well-drained farms have much better-looking green-color corn than the ones that are that have the water's been sitting and have some saturated soils right now with some pancaking of those roots right now that can't get to that nitrogen. Yeah, I noticed that as I drove north here uh, this morning that uh, we're definitely seeing some water and, and probably some nutrient stress on some of these cornfields. You know, and I think we're going to see more IDC this year as well just because of that uh, excess water. Yeah, I agree with that. I've seen that too now in the last week or so. What about corn? Other issues you're seeing in corn, Kurt? Well, right now, weed control, uh, there has been some issues. And again, with the ponding of water we've had over the last few years, some drowned out areas, the water hemp has been an issue. Uh, it, it's uh, We've had these areas that haven't been able to been controlled because there hasn't been any crop canopy there for a few years. And so a week to 10 days ago, when guys were treating their cornfields, the temperatures were in them 72 to 75 degrees some very cool mornings. I could see my breath out there getting out at 530 in the morning. It was 45, 48 degrees. And I think we had some weed control issues with water hemp that would now we've had to come back and retreat in some of these cornfields. Obviously, the height of corn has been a challenge. So products are getting limited on what we can use. Coverage has also been an issue. But I think that that got coming down to using a pre-herbicide needs to happen in corn and in soybeans because you need to take that pressure off those areas. Because you get a one to two inch water hemp out there and they canopy each other in these patches and you just can't get good coverage out there. Yeah, I'm hearing the same thing. And, you know, I think uh, if if we can get some of these fields under control a little bit better uh, with good weed management, I think we're going to have a little more flexibility in, in how we handle it. We're not going to be under such stress all the time and, and, you know, trying to stop train wrecks after they've happened. That's exactly right. And Right now, I had, we had a windstorm obviously come through yesterday with that front that came through. And right now, there was products that were sprayed that uh, were kind of off-label for the conditions we had. And Nick Green snapped a couple of farms I looked at yesterday because a dicamba product was used. And uh, the labels need to be looked at. The temperature, the weather forecasting needs to be looked at before we apply these products when we're pushing the height of corn that we are right now. Well, Kurt, do you have a lot of your growers or customers or yourself that uh, has have cut back on the BT in, in corn this yeah, year? Yeah, I have. Um, been a lot. I, I would say right now my customer base has probably got, you know, there's probably at least 20% conventional corn out there right now in my area, and maybe more, maybe more that I don't even know of. But at this point, my I have a lot of growers going to conventional corn. Well, that's kind of, uh, I think that's not a bad decision in, in for the most part, but it's stuff we're going to have to pay attention to. For, we're seeing low corn borer numbers. Uh, we still are having a few uh, show up in this first generation flight at Lamberton, but the numbers are low. They're kind of low statewide. But uh, we get back to this uneven planning scenario, and we've got some fields that are going to be very, very attractive. And, uh, you know, I think 
you know this, but when you got bigger cornfields that are have no BT in them, those are the ones you're going to focus on. And, you know, hopefully that gives you a little indication of how bad that corn borer problem is going to be. And I think you're right, Bruce. I think we've come complacent because of the BT genetics we've had for a long time now. Uh, I think the, the last, uh, you know, I've been intentionally starting to scout more of the conventional hybrids, but you know, 20 years ago, uh, it, that's when the BT genetics came into play basically. And it's taken, we got to get back into that mindset of starting to do a thorough scouting of these conventional hybrids. And I think even we're going to have to pay attention to some of the BT fields. Uh, you know, we haven't seen this issue here, but I know in, in uh, Eastern Canada, they've had some problems where they've got uh, corn borer population. It's a different biotype than we have here, but uh, corn borer populations that are getting around the uh, Herculex trait, uh, BT trait. So, you know, that's just what happens when we you go to the well too many times and uh, if an insect doesn't go extinct, it's, we're going to select for the ones that can survive. Well, Bruce, I was just going to ask a quick ask question here in terms of that. So if a farmer does scout or a consultant does scout, how do they know when they really have a problem or an issue if they're in a non-BT situation like we're talking about? And uh, what management would they do this year and what management should they think about next year if these numbers are going higher? Well, for corn borer, the good news is uh, this first generation is pretty easy to scout for. You're going to look for the tallest corn in the fields in the area, and you're going to go look through, and, and uh, you know, that shot hole damage is going to be pretty visible up in the world. Um, you can look at the economic threshold for those, and, and they're in that world stage corn, they're fairly easy to control with an insecticide. If we start seeing more corn borers and we do a corn borer survey every fall and, you know, people like Kurt uh, clue us into fields that don't have BT so we can get a little better handle on what those populations are. Uh, we try to keep a handle on if those populations are, are static or if they're going up or down. And as I mentioned before, we're coming up to July 1st here, Bruce. So at this point in time, from an, an IPM standpoint, what are some of the insect situations here in Minnesota that growers and others uh, should keep an eye on for and scout for at this point? Well, one thing I think we need to really pay attention to, we had some, have caught some uh, big numbers in some of the light traps. Not that it's a guaranteed problem, but certainly people should be atten paying attention to uh, true armyworms, uh, both in small grains and in corn. You know, if you've got corn that we talked about weed control earlier, if you've got some corn that had grassy weeds in it early that, that were fairly thick, or you've got some heavy grasses that are lodging on the end of the field, those are, or edge of the field, those are places to start checking. Any place your small grains are lodged or are exceptionally dense, you know, so I think next couple of weeks uh, we're going to see how, how that insect plays out. After the 4th of July, I think we also, also uh, people should be out starting to pay attention to soybean aphids. Uh, most people know there's certain fields tend to have aphid pressure earlier and try to get a, a, a perspective on how those early season populations are doing. And uh, one thing that we're seeing this year, we had a problem in 2017, but uh, this spring, the first generation of uh, thistle caterpillars were fairly heavy in some of these early planted fields. They concentrated the, the butterflies and larvae and damage. But I think we're going to have to watch that for set later on in July for uh, pressure on soybeans later on. Do you want to just quickly mention the economic threshold here uh, we're using in Minnesota on soybean aphids? Oh, sure. It's, uh, it's, we can't seem to be able to change it because it's fairly robust and simple, but uh, it's basically 250 aphid per plant average. Uh, we want most of those plants to have an aphid on it, you know, 80% or more of the plants with aphids. 
and we're going to run that all the way through uh, through our five stage soybeans up till our six. And it, as far as protecting yield, it works fairly well. We were talking a little bit before we started the uh, podcast about potato leaf hoppers. So uh, both of you obviously have had a lot of experience on that. I know uh, in terms of that, you want to set the stage here, Bruce, and then, and then Kurt can mention a little bit about what he's seen in the area as well. Yeah, a lot of our insect problems, you know, the painted ladies, the black cutworms, uh, armyworms, and, and uh, potato leaf hoppers, they're all migrants. They don't survive the winter here. Potato leaf hoppers are pretty darn active, and, and particularly on some of these legume crops, they can cause a lot of damage. The pro- other problem is the adults are very mobile, so if you cut an alfalfa field, they'll maybe move over to soybeans or dry beans. You know, as they reproduce and those populations get thicker there, the alfalfa starts to grow back. They'll move back and forth. It's kind of kind of chasing your tail for a little bit. And Kurt, you think I think you've seen some issues on dry beans oh, and definitely. alfalfa both. I, I've been scouting dry beans now, and, and three days before, you won't see hardly anything out there. And all of a sudden, you'll come back three days later, and you'll start seeing the damage on the on the first trifoliates right away. And so... They are coming in like gangbusters right now. And uh, second cr- cutting of alfalfa is happening. Road ditch hay is being cut. And so they're going to move into the dry bean areas. And I got a quite a few dry bean acres in the Renville, Sibley, McLeod uh, County areas, Chippewa, Candy Eye County. So definitely uh, uh, guys need to be out there treating. And you're probably going to have to can treat for a, you know a couple applications because, like Bruce said, they're going to be moving back and forth a lot. Yeah, and I think, Kurt, uh, you know, if, if one thing people should keep in mind, if they're retreating fields, you know, you really don't want to go back to the same uh, insecticide more than once. You want to switch those up a little bit. You don't know what, what they were treated with maybe before, but it's just kind of a good standard practice to rotate your insecticides just like you do herbicides. Just like that's exactly right. Great point on that. Second cutting alfalfa gets cut, gets made up, uh, you know, five to seven days later, they need to be in there treating that alfalfa with an insecticide and uh, because they really are gangbusters right now. You are scouting those and looking at a uh, number of that, leaf hoppers per sweep as that a is threshold. Correct. Yep. Yes. So, yes. what is the threshold on a, on a, with a sweep net? Well, for alfalfa, it's based on alfalfa height, and basically it works out to a tenth of a leaf hopper per sweep per inch of alfalfa growth. And, and uh, you know, it's the early, early shorter uh, regrowth that uh, takes a pounding with less, uh, I mean, with less leaf hoppers. Well, we wanted to talk about a couple other things, and we can move back into uh, some of the IPM. But I, I know the other things that we were mentioning earlier, Kurt, were you know the fertility, and this is a wet year, obviously. So, any comments a little bit about some of the things that you've seen just in scouting in, in terms of crop health? I think uh, uh, something that came upon uh, in the last couple of weeks was uh, when you went from that early corn growth stage to you know, when we started to go into that V4, V5 stage, we've gotten through that yellow kind of stage of corn. And and my observations were that any fall manure, fall anhydrous, and there wasn't that a lot of fall anhydrous applied because of the type of fall we had last fall. But those acres seemed to come around a little slower than what the spring urea, spring 28%. I think a couple of things there. I don't think that the ammonium transformed to nitrate quick enough because of the cold soil temperatures we had. Plus that whatever end we had there on top moved down a little bit further in the profile and the roots weren't there yet. So the fallen hydrous fields and the manure fields now have come around. They look good, but definitely there was about a week to 10 day window in there where they were not looking as good as the, as the spring applications at the end. Did we hurt yield? No, that was all before V8 stage. Uh, it, it all greened up now by V8 and I think we're all going to be okay with those farms. 
the temperatures are going to make a difference here as we go forward. You know, that we always talk about the rainfall and the potential impact it has on soybean production, particularly, you know, we always say, you know, rain in, in August in a timely manner, you know, helps to make the soybean crop in a lot of Minnesota. So we've got a lot of season yet to come. But that keeping in mind, you know, I was talking to some co-workers this morning up in the Stearns County area and so forth, a lot of variability, prevent planting and, and so forth. And we've got a couple minutes here. Any any comments about prevent planting that either one of you have and in terms of what, what to watch for or, or manage? And there's going to be difficulty, obviously, of figuring out what to, what to plant in those areas and so forth. But um, there's a concern and a, and a conundrum of, you know, some of the, leaving these areas fallow, et cetera. But uh, comments on, on that, Kurt, anything that you've run into? Well, definitely we need to, because of NRCS laws uh, that impact the ground, we definitely need to have a cover crop out there. And also we don't want the fallow syndrome to happen for next year's corn crop out there. But definitely uh, I think we're going to have to keep on top of the insect issue because I think this, like Bruce was saying, this this whole impact of different crop stages of planting and, and different sizes of things are going to impact. I, I was in a field of corn yesterday that was th- bordered three sides of a CRP and the stock bore and the in the in the army worm were in that in that first row. I mean you could see it right off and it's coming from the grass. So PP acres are going to generally probably be planted to a late planted oat crop or something like that. So this insect issue is going to continue on for the because there's so many different planting dates and crops out there they're going to be right now. One thing we haven't talked very much about, Bruce, and that's disease. Is there uh, some scouting things that people need to keep in mind? I mean, we've had a challenging year from a disease standpoint in our our, our field crops. Sure. Um, just want to touch on one thing with the prevent plant stuff, and I think people can't ignore the weed control aspect of that. There's some True. darn big weeds out there, and, and especially things like lamb's quarters are right on the edge of form and seed. So uh, we don't want to make things worse for next year. As far as disease, uh, yeah, wet wet conditions, uh, you know, you always tend to have a little more disease. Uh, You know, some guys are using fungicides on corn and soybeans, but really it's probably to their economic advantage to do some scouting and uh, make sure they actually have some diseases in there worth, worth treating. The other thing that mentioning disease, and it goes back to an insect issue, We've got a new soybean insect in Minnesota and, and uh, the upper Midwest called a soybean gall midge. That injury mimics some soybean diseases. If you see plants dying and wilting on the edge of the field, you know, it might be worth your while to take a look at those lower stems, see if you've got discoloration. If you do, uh, peel some of that epidermis back and make sure there's, an in, uh, there's not an insect uh, larvae in there versus uh, some sort of pathogen. Now, if they want to learn more about some of those things, I think you've written some uh, articles on soybean gall midge. Are there, where can they go to f- read out a little bit more about that? And you have some traps and some monitoring going on. In Minnesota, they can go to the Minnesota Crop News uh, website, and we've got a couple of articles on, on soybean gall midge. Pretty in, uh, extensive uh, checkoff-funded effort between uh, Iowa, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Minnesota trying to get a handle on this new insect. Uh, we don't know much about it. We don't know how chemical control works, that sort of thing. But we'll keep uh, people posted during the season. At this point, Kurt, are there any um, other items that you would like to cover a little bit about what growers should be uh, thinking about doing or maybe not doing well uh, in the month of uh, July coming up here? The biggest thing I am, am discussing with my growers right now is that we are a long ways from canopy in these soybean fields. 
and Bruce mentioned it about weed control and the PP acres. Well, it's about water hemp control before it emerges. And I'm really a proponent of layering these pre-emergence herbicides. And so if you're in 30-inch rows or even 20-inch rows, we got a long way to go to before canopy in these soybeans with late planted soybeans and, and a cooler spring. So I'm encouraging growers to spend the extra 10 bucks an acre and put another layer of herbicides out there, especially if they can get out in these fields before a rain and get that herbicide activated. Then uh, it's just going to help you down the line for water hemp because water hemp loves light and it's going to come through the light and we got a long way to go for canopy. And uh, our canopy is going to be less and less this year, given everything else that we do in terms of planting. And I know Dr. Jeff Gonzalez has always said, you know, that that rule of thumb, that four inch, and I know Bruce has seen this too with lamb's quarters, it doesn't take too long and things get up and, and if it gets dry, things get hardened off. So really scouting for that post-emergence and the water hemp biology, water hemp keeps emerging all, all season long. It'll, it'll come up very small and set seed, you know, in the corn. We've all seen that. So... You know, those are really two important weeds uh, with that. Bruce, any other uh, last comments on things that people should be uh, doing or thinking about doing, or as we mentioned before, maybe not doing, but certainly being proactive out in the field? Well, I think, you know, things people really need to keep in mind is that not every field has the same insect, weed, or disease problems, and they're all unique. And the only way you're going to understand how to maximize your economic return on your management is by scouting. So get out there, look at those fields or, you know, have, have somebody like Kurt look for you, particularly if you're old like me and can't hardly see aphids anymore. Well, we appreciate your advice, uh, sage advice for both of you had many, many years in the field. We'd like to wrap up this podcast. We'll be continuing others in the future here with other uh, University of Minnesota staff and consultants, etc. So this is the, uh, the third installment of the Integrated Pest Management. And we'd like to thank again Kurt Burns, the independent crop consultant from the uh, McLeod area, Stewart area, and also uh, Bruce Potter from our IPM staff at the University of Minnesota at Lamberton. So with that, thank you again, and we look forward to visiting more about these items in the future.